Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as the February Room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. I can attest that being a summer steelhead guide uh, demands a, a modicum of optimism. Um, guiding for winter steelhead, specifically winter steelhead on the swung fly, requires almost a faith-like obsession. Uh, today's guest is one of those grinders who I have to imagine believes that he is going to find a fish every day. But what really makes him unique among steelhead guides is that he has managed to stay married for three years. Dax Messett, welcome to the February Room. Thanks, Justin. Uh, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Appreciate it. Well, yeah, man, it's really good to hear your voice. It's been too long. Um, I've missed you um, on the, the couple of times that I've gotten out into your neck of the woods the last couple of years, and I'm really looking forward to catching up. But, uh, but first, I know you've got volumes of stories from your adventures. Uh, can you share one with us well, um, or two? I thought about that when you brought it up the other day, and um, I've done some other podcasts and you know video interviews and I have to say that this is the first one I've done in the morning. Therefore, I haven't had any scotch with Simon Gosworth and Johnny before or just, you know, I did 
Hogan Brown's uh, podcast. Great dude. I saw you had him on too. And he's like, I kind of want it to be like we're on a campfire. And I'm like, well, campfire, I, I drink beer and whiskey. So over the course of that podcast, I might have had one too many. Maybe he did, he did too. I'm not sure. And towards the end of it, we weren't talking about fishing at all. We were like talking about all this old obscure punk rock that we both enjoy and, and college football and it just spiraled into into that. So, and in other ones, you know, the the classic guide story, you, you end up talking about ridiculous dumb stuff that clients did and, and some of those end up, you, you re-listen to them and it's like, uh, and some of the feedback I'd get, it's like, why would anybody want to fish with you? It sounds like you're really mean to the clients and make fun of them for doing dumb shit, <laughs> which is what every guy does at the end of the day. We don't, it's not like we're making fun of them. But we talk about, yeah, I guess some of the dumb shit they did. So I'll make fun of myself in the first story instead of clients. And um, and it's just bringing up like things that happen when you travel that could happen to anybody. And my first trip to Mexico to go <clears throat> tarpon fishing and, and, and bone fishing. And, and I, permit wasn't really on my mind back then because I hadn't tortured myself with those yet. And it was 2012, I believe. And I'm hosting a couple weeks, you know, doing like the, the baby tarpon tour, juvie tarpon tour. And I, I went down for about a month. And so I just was freelancing for the first couple of weeks before I met up with my, my crew of clients on the hosted trip. And, you know, I kind of dig around and, and uh, I wanted to go hang out in Playa del Carmen. And I was wondering if there was any fishing there. And my buddy dialing at Flywater Travels like, mm, I don't know, contact this guy. And then I contact this one dude. And then he has me contact another dude. And he's like, oh, yeah, you can meet up with this dude named Gaspar out of Cozumel. You know, you take a ferry over and you walk off the ferry and kind of walk to this little cafe. And you'll see him there and you're going to go bone fishing. And I'm like, sweet. Sounds simple enough. So I go take the ferry and I meet Gaspar. And my Spanish is awful. I, I'm sorry, I try and I try to brush up before I go. So I knew a little bit and he knew absolutely no English. Um, but you know, you jump in a car trusting this guy and you go in his little truck and we come out to this pretty sweet, uh, it wasn't even a pong, it was like a full on, like really expensive flat skiff that was kind of surprising. And we jump in it and I'm like, awesome. Cause I knew nothing about what was gonna happen. And so, we cruise around for about 25 minutes and we pull up to this really nice looking flat and I'm like, sweet, all right. And we hop out of the boat and he's, again, no English, terrible. We cannot communicate with each other and he starts walking into this jungle and I'm like, where the, where's he going? He's like, vamonos, vamonos, you know? So I'm like looking at this flat, like, why are we leaving this to go into this jungle? Like, is this like, am I gonna be on 60 minutes or something? Like. So we go in this jungle and like it's full on mosquito, like horrible, you know, just awful. Like and we end up in this like bog and like and we're kind of now walking through this mud quicksand stuff. And dude, I'm like, what what is going on here? Does this dude know what I want to do? <laughs> and uh, we end up at this boat that's just like full of trees and branches and sticks and shit and like mind you we leave this like hell's bay boat to like and it's like this 10 foot v-haul like stuck in this bog and i'm like what the fuck where are we going seriously so 
he kind of pushes it off a little bit and he's like, Bominos, get in. And you know, you start to ask yourself, should I get in this thing? Like, what are we doing? So he starts pulling me through this like swamp, but terrible bugs. And, um, you know, I'm, and he's like five, two, maybe five, five, one. And, um, so there's not like, it's not tippy back there, but I'm, I'm up in the bow and there's like this bench seat and no floor. And I'm just like, how are we, are we going to a flat? Like, what are we doing? And why'd we leave that other one? So we end up and dude, all, all of a sudden it opens up into this unbelievable, um, like enclosed bay. And I immediately see hundreds of bonefish tailing, hundreds of them. And I'm like, oh, okay. And he's like, ah, okay now, okay. <laughs> like, I'm like, move again, move again, all right. <laughs> and so he pulls over and like, yeah, dude, um, instant, like first cast, bam, bonefish. And I'm like, all right, that was cool. Mission already accomplished. Like, wow, that's really cool. He didn't bring me here to sell me off. And um, so, so like on my third cast and third bonefish, um, this bonefish makes its run and uh, and it all of a sudden he blasts through this school of like 10 mid-teens pound permit. And I'm like, oh, oh my God. I'm like, that that's what I want there. And he's like, oh, but, and I'm like, Paul, well, permit, that, that's what I, and I wasn't even going there for permit. I had no permit flies. I had not, you know what I mean? And didn't think they would even be there. And he's like, yeah. And he kind of says, you sure you want to catch them? We catch many bonefish, but very hard to catch permit. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm a winter steelhead guy, dude. I'm used to not catching anything all the time. And so um, I like catching stuff that's super challenging. And so we kind of put that together. And so we spend the rest of the day, Justin, I, I don't know how many shots I had, a dozen um, at, at permit ranging from, you know, mid-teens to over 20. You know, there were a few giant onesies, twosies, but in terms of like, there wasn't any guide-client communication that was really good enough, or I wasn't good enough casting or whatever. and. You know, he bumped the boat into a rock, and of course, they're just like spooky as shit anyway, and then they'd blast off. And and so, like, I might have had a couple each, you know, I didn't know how to strip, what they felt like when they eat, how long, you know, so it ended up just uh, being a super memorable, really cool experience. And uh, I was happy I didn't get murdered, and, and, and I didn't cast to another bonefish, and that started my obsession with Evil Permit. And... Uh, uh, the story ends is, you know, I'm just elated and I gave him all the money in my wallet for a tip except like, you know, 30 pesos for a beer on the ferry back to Playa. And um, I end up and, and I got my beer and I'm and I'm in line to get on the ferry. And there were these cute little Mayan girls like kind of, you know, trying to talk to me and like being real cute and and they were i had like my uh flats boots dangling off my pack and they were like kind of hitting them back and forth and i thought i might have felt something brush against me but i thought nothing of it and then right as the line drops for everybody to push onto this ferry like hundreds of people and this lady behind me grabs me she's like that girl right there that little girl stole your wallet i watched it i watched her take your wallet and I'm like, what? And I feel in my wallet's gone. And they were those cute girls like messing with me. 
Little did they know there was like three American dollars in my wallet. It was like worth it. You know what I mean? Because I... <laughs> oh, dude, if I looked like some rich American, wrong, dude. I'm a broke fishing guide. Like, you couldn't have... Good good yeah. luck with that identity. You know, and it, it didn't even have my... So all I had in there, I think, was like a bank card and like a AAA card or something like... But still, I was angry, so I like <laughs> I was an you know I was the angry white American. I just part through all these. I'm pushing people over until I was able to grab her, and she's like nine, and I have her by her shoulder, and I'm like, "Give me my effing wallet!" I'm screaming at her. You know what I mean? And a couple of people were like, "That doesn't look right." <laughs> oh God! And um, and again, no. I, and, and so I'm screaming at her, and she's like, "I don't have it." And um, so cops, of course, start coming over because I'm insulting a nine-year-old. And, uh, and they're like, one of them <laughs> thankfully spoke English. And I'm like, this girl took my wallet. And the lady behind me, she's like, yep, I watched her take it. She had, and, and so they kind of do this half-assed frisk on her. And this ferry's wanting to leave. And so the captain of the ferry's like, let's go. And so she obviously passed it off to one of her accomplices, like these cute little Mayan girls, you know, and, um, while it's gone and, um, I end up missing that ferry because my friggin' ticket was in the wallet. <laughs> right. And so they take care of me and let me get on the next ferry. And then I had to call my mom to send a, you know, some, <laughs> because I'm in the middle of Playa del Carmen and the one bank card I had was gone for the whole trip, you know? So, um, I had some money in the safe at the hotel room, but anyway, that's, that's how that story ended up. So, Keep your wallet in a zippered or, or a fanny pack or whatever. Just keep your eyes on a swivel um, in crowded places in any city, even if it's cute little kids and you just got done having your mind blown permit and bone fishing. And did you say that was on Cozumel? It's a, yeah, dude, like in the tourist mecca of Cozumel, um, Gaspar, and I think I still have the guy who put me in touch with him. And again, this is probably 10 years ago. And I, I asked about this, of course, then you start doing research and you find it on Google Earth after that came out. And so it's something that those permit aren't always in there. But at that time, they were literally trapped in there because the sandbar was such that it needed to get blown out again with a storm or whatnot. So those permit were just swimming around, eating, <laughs> eating what was in this gigantic, I mean, it was this huge laguna. It was, it was huge. And... Gaspar worked hard to pull me around um, in, the, in, the, in a boat that's not meant to be pulled and or fished out of. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a, a pram would be cool in there. <laughs> like that would have been cool, like pulling around in a pram because it was just hard to be quiet and the boat's just constantly tipping. You're like almost, you know, surfing, you know what I mean? Or, or, or snowboarding with the, how much that boat rocked as you're chasing these gigantic permit around um, and, and getting more and more frustrated with both your inability to, to catch them and uh, wouldn't, knowing that this might not ever happen again. So, you know? um, man, my, my wife and I went to Cozumel. We went to Cozumel for our honeymoon. And we didn't know we were going to go to Cozumel. My mother-in-law um, used to be a flight attendant for an airline. And so we were just flying standby and we were going to go to Cancun and we were going to rent a car and we were going to wing it and just nice. drive down the Yucatan, you know. Um, 
and we get to the airport and there's no flights available to Cancun, but there's two seats open for Cozumel. So we end up, we go to Cozumel, you know, we don't have anything booked. We don't have anything planned. We've got two backpacks, you know, a, a couple fly rods and some cash. And we ended up just going hotel to hotel and saying, hey, we got 40 bucks, you got a room. And, and it worked. And, um, and we ended up driving around to kind of the uninhabited side of Cozumel and they shut down um, the gates to get around there at like seven or eight o'clock at night at the time. Um, and, and incidentally, um, I, you know, of course, wanted to go try to catch some fish. And I ended up sitting, <laughs> sitting through, you know, this dreadful timeshare presentation <laughs> with uh, the allure of a bone fishing right. trip on the back end. And... Of course, the guy never showed up for the bone fishing trip, right? So, got totally hosed on that. My wife and I ended up renting this Volkswagen Beetle that uh, it didn't have two panels <laughs> that were the same color, and there was a hole. There was a hole in the floor, and it had like three gears, and the second gear slipped so badly you could hardly get it in. And my wife couldn't drive it, um, and I could barely drive it. But it was like six bucks Perfect. a day. So we ended up renting this beetle. Oh, it was great, man. And and we drove around to that uninhabited side of the island, and there was this really cool little um, motel back there called um, uh, Ventana Del Mar, Windows of the Sea. And, and next to Ventana Del Mar, there was a, a bar and a restaurant, and it was the only thing within eyesight on that side of the, that side of the island. And... My wife and I go to the bar one night and, you know, I have too much to drink and I get back to the room and I realize my wallet's gone. And yeah, and I've got both of our ideas, our, our IDs in there, all of our cash, everything for the trip, everything to get home is in, is in that wallet. And uh, so I stumble out of the room and I go to go, you know, search the closed down bar to see if my wallet's possibly on the floor or something. And I see this dark spot on the staircase and I'm approaching it and I'm like trying to determine if my, if my, if it's my wallet or not, I'm about to grab it. And it's this huge tarantula. <laughs> oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> so it's not my wallet, but, uh, but anyway, this dude that worked there, like the caretaker guy, came and found me and gave me my wallet oh, back, right? Beautiful. Not a dollar missing in it, nothing. And yeah, man, just completely, completely saved our asses. Wow. See that? Look, for every rough story like mine, there's a beautiful yeah. one like yours, you know? And there are good, you know, not everybody's totally. trying to, to get you when you're traveling down there or anywhere else for that matter. And hearing stories like that, it's kind of gives you a little bit of hope, right? <laughs> yeah, man, it was awesome. And I, you know, I thought, wow, it's a good thing that I'm not in Detroit um, or <laughs> <laughs> or Portland sure. or, or, you know, wherever. Not, not everywhere um, would, uh, would my wallet have been returned like that. So th that was amazing. But that's, that's awesome that you had that fishing experience down there. Um, I was hoping to, to, to find something like that, but the timeshare, 
deal didn't work out quite uh, <laughs> quite as good for me. So anyway, at least you didn't have to call your mom to like send some <laughs> cash to some weird bank in the bad side of Playa del Carmen, like dudes with machine guns outside. I'm like. That's what it came down to, you know, and she's like, see, I knew it. You know, my mom's like one of those people that has left Western Pennsylvania like three times in her whole life. And all this traveling I do, she's just in constant. Yeah, so that's what you get for traveling. Now she's (laughs) right. Yeah. See, that wouldn't have happened in (laughs) Farrell. Well, actually. (laughs) And now a brief message from our sponsors. Born from Japanese Torrey. CD's unique manufacturing process involves winding the graphite fibers inside the blank, negating heavy thread wraps at the end of each section, creating a lighter and more durable fly rod. Check out the XLS2 and the ICT2 at your local CD USA dealer or go to cd-fishing.us and remember to go fishing. Well, uh, so Dax, simply put, like, what does a year in the life of Dax Messet look like? Well, I kind of, uh, I'm still, I'm not bouncing around quite as much as when we first met each other and we're talking. I'm, I'm a little more, I actually have, uh, I'm not homeless anymore. Um, my beautiful wife and I have a place in Medford. Um, and we, she also was a full-time fishing guide for, for several years. Um, like me, that's how she's able to tolerate the winter steelhead, uh, thing. And the amount of traveling I do, because she's she's game, she's as crazy as I am, if not more, about all that fishing stuff. But we do have a home base in Medford, and we're stoked on that. And um, so January, February, March, we we have a place in Gold Beach um, that we rent out, and um, that's kind of where my guide operation is based, and she guides um, winter fish too, <clears throat> and. Um, yeah, just did a group trip with Johnny. So we do everything from uh, group trips to just one-on-one guide days. And, uh, you know, mid-February to mid-April, I was going up to the Olympic Peninsula for, I think I did that for eight years or so. And uh, between COVID happening in 2020 and, and the, the, the politicized aspect of it, I've kind of taken a break from that for the time being and just going to um, let, let my local buddies that, that live there uh, take people fishing and send people up to them. It's still one of my favorite places to, to swing a fly in the world. Love that place. Super special. Um, but I'm sticking to the Southern Oregon coast, uh, through March and, um, first week of April, I, a few years back, I, I got, um, a North Umpqua fly water permit and there's only nine. And I was on the list for, I think about 16 years to get that. So I was super stoked when I was finally, my turn was up, if you will, and and uh, made it happen. And then sadly, the river burned down, and it's like the end. Of, you know what I mean? Yeah. I was there when that happened? But but anyway, um, but so gonna do a, a couple trips up there, end of March, early April, and then usually April, May, I do some saltwater hosted trips. And I've done the this year. I'm doing. Uh, um, I'm gonna do uh, Honduras, Roatan, fish with my buddy. Greg Baldwin, and after that, I'm gonna head down to uh, Belize, <clears throat> fish Blue Horizon, and uh, very, very cool place. And then, um, and then at the end of May, um, I'll do a few salmon fly trips on the Upper Rogue. And then, um, come June, I, I go down. To, I still love the Fall River Valley and NorCal, 
Um, it's one of my favorite trout fisheries on the planet. And that's even after spending eight or nine years in New Zealand, I still love that valley. And I just fish dries and sinking lines there, Spring Creek. And I really <clears throat> dig that place. And then come July, it's a split between some more hosted travel. Um, this year I'm doing the Bolivia thing again for Golden Dorado. I really dig that, uh, that fishing. We talked a little bit about that and, and then I'll do some North Umpqua stuff. And then August, um, I go up to hosting a trip at, uh, Jeff Hickman's Kim Squip Bay Lodge on the Dean. And then from there I go up to BC and kind of freelance a little bit. And then I host a trip every year at Skeena Spay. Um, on the lower Skeena, I've been doing that for many years and uh, hosting a, at a number of lodges in that Skeena country. So I usually spend four or five weeks up in Skeena country every year in that late August into September. And then come at the end of September and October, I usually go down to the lower Klamath, <clears throat> help Confluence Outfitters out with their spay camps down there. And that's a super cool venue. And then November's on the Rogue, Upper Rogue, kind of being at home and, and guiding on the Upper Rogue. I think that's a great month for for those fall steelhead. And then December, I host a trip to New Orleans every year for, for big bull redfish and a lot of beignets and really good food and really good uh, whiskey. And, and uh, yeah, and that's my calendar year. And it moves a little bit um, as new interests pop up or opportunities and but that's kind of how it goes between guiding and hosting, you know, and and kind of go from there. Well, that sounds like a pretty epic year. Um, and to do that year in, year out, um, that's a that's a pretty good cycle you've put together for yourself in this industry. It's not easy to to piece all that together and uh, and, you know, keep the bills paid and uh, and keep the blood flowing and uh, and get to experience um, such a diverse number of fisheries uh, across the globe. And it sounds like you've, you know, obviously steelhead are always going to be, um, you know, kind of at the core of, of who you are as an angler and a person, but, uh, but you've discovered these other fisheries that interest you for various reasons too, and have, uh, have, have chosen to, to kind of focus on those and, and share those with, uh, with some of your, longtime friends and clientele. So good on you, man. That's not easy to pull off. Exactly. Nope. <laughs> that's, that's for sure, but super gratifying and I'm grateful. And, uh, there's a lot of people that helped on the way in terms of steering me and influencing me to, to find, you know, a lot of these places in a career I didn't intend to, to really do. It just kind of became <laughs> who, I, who I was, you know, and it's, you wake up and it's like, oh my God, well, how old am I? How long am I been doing this? Um, I don't, yeah, the, the real job just gets further and further away. But um, mind you, it is a job because a lot of work, a lot of work goes into all this stuff. And thankfully my <clears throat> family is supportive of it. And uh, as you said, you know, the, it's a relationship-based business, as you know, and I'm just fortunate to have developed some just incredible friendships and clientele over the years. And, um, you know, because the type of fishing I do certainly is not the easiest and and um, it's not a it's not a big a big pull in terms of people that I like spending time on and off the water because I like really challenging fishing and I love casting and angling well and teaching people how to do it and how to appreciate those those venues where you just feel like um, it's just more value if it's tougher to have, you know, 
those types of moments that you that you do remember. You know, if you're just trying to catch a bunch of truck trout somewhere or just go up, and I'm not dissing other <clears throat> venues and things like that, but if you just want to go somewhere with a clicker and have 30 pictures of the same silver in Alaska, you know, after a trip, like, we landed 375, you're never going to do like that weird story I told, you know, um, I didn't catch any of those permit and it was still one of the most memorable fishing days I ever had. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and whether it's permit fishing or a week fishing on the Skeena or the Dean or, or the Florida Keys or whatnot, um, you know, you don't base a fishery on like one experience you have, you, you go there and other places and it's like, yeah, you, you just, as an angler, you know, it's like, boy, I just really um, like those those challenging fisheries, and uh, yeah, yeah. So what uh, what are you seeing out there as far as um, as the winter steelhead numbers this year, Dax, as as opposed to like last year, and um, kind of what's the trend right now? Are you optimistic? I'm optimistic. Always, um, always. Of course, you're optimistic. You're a winter steelhead guy. Yeah, but uh, hope but, springs eternal. It better. Yeah. Um, you know, it's and it's you see everything if you've been winter steelheading enough, you know. So we had this crazy, um, as you you might know, um, in Northern California, Southern Oregon, we had like records amount of precip for December. Um, and then here January came by and it like didn't rain once. So all our rivers here in Southern Oregon and talking to some friends down in NorCal, too, it's everything's just really, really low. So the smaller watersheds um or just they're like tiny trickles and cricks so those aren't aren't fishing so you know you're having to go to the bigger systems to even have a shot at finding some fish but man it's like it's kind of like summer steelhead fishing on the grand ron or deschutes or or wherever your favorite summer steelhead river is you're like you no matter what you're going to be having some bright sun cloudless days (laughs) like day after day and you're kind of looking for shade and you know it's like god it's hard enough right um but you know the rivers are low and clear but man i had a good week last week i encountered fish every day i worked and um knock on wood you know they just have to come through sooner or later so and also pressures way down when it's like that um in southern oregon anyway we we have some some political stuff that's happened. I'm sure people have read about um, where you're you're allowed to kill wild steelhead, and um, and it's the only place on the planet where you're still a- allowed to to harvest wild steelhead. And boy, they they really like doing that around here. And um, so, you know, at the mouths of these rivers, though, where you could drive to a gravel bar, um, if the rivers are in primo flow shape, you know, dropping after a rain, they'll literally be over a hundred anglers parked out there with the side planers and spinning glow and sand shrimp. And it's hard for a biter steelhead to just kind of cruise on by that. Um, so me and Johnny talk all the time and Gino about like, it's a miracle we, we even get them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, Cause they're, it's just so lethal. It's not as bad as having a, a gill net but um yeah so that's you know um with them not being out there i think then i actually run into more fish because there's just more biters around so um i think it's been okay so far um and from an optimistic standpoint just talking to friends that 
that are fish biologists or are friends with biologists, you know, it sounds like ocean conditions are improving because um, that's one of the main things that the ODFW talks about. Like, you know, we haven't managed it bad at all. It's all about the ocean. That's why the numbers are, you know, and you can only blame the ocean so much, but you got to look hard at what your regulations are on your fishery. Um, and, and, and like you have control over that, you know, you shouldn't be allowed to be able to side drift row right below a fish ladder, you know, (laughs) (laughs) um, it's just insane. Um, and, and that's on a different system that's up on the Umpqua, but anyway, um, and there's so, you know, Washington, Oregon, California, all these fishery management, uh, uh, entities, you know, um, I think they're getting more aware because the alarm bells have been ringing now and more people are getting involved. And that's that gives me hope, Justin, is it's just a lot more people are aware of the plight of steelhead and then they become active conservationists. And I think that is going to help um, manage fisheries better in the in the future, you know, because, hell, we're only here for another. I'm only going to be a steelhead fisherman for another hopefully 40, 50 years, which is just such a minuscule amount of time in the long run. So if um, dams come out and and we we have continued drought, yeah, there's going to be take a while for all that sediment. And this is the Klamath, for instance. You know, there there was so much resistance for taking those dams out and well, when you take them dams out, it'll just be silt through the whole river. And then none of you swing people will get anything. You know, all those rednecks that, that love the dams. You know, um, I think the, the closer you get it back to nature, the better. And then the steelhead recovers. So I kind of went off on a little tangent there, but it's. No, it's all good. Um, yeah. The, the, the one thing that we have to remember about steelhead is that they're incredibly resilient species. Like. I mean, we we have we have beaten them down, and and you know at times nature has 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 beaten them down to a trickle, and they as long as there's enough around to maintain the genetic diversity, they will recover on their own if you get out of their way, and they've done that time and time again. Um, you know, it's interesting. Like when I started guiding steelhead in the early nineties, there were years where there wasn't many fish around, you know, like, and then during the, obviously my, my steelhead experience primarily comes from the Columbia system, um, which is closed currently. Um, but you know, there were, there were just, it was kind of understood that, Hey, you might not go catch a steelhead every day. Right. And then, um, I remember days and, you know, days stretching into weeks when the conditions were stagnant, like like you just referred to, um, where we just had high sun and heat for days on end and nothing was changing. Um, you know, the the deck was not being shuffled, per se. And um, it's it's tough to 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 stay optimistic as a guide in those conditions, because it's like, all right, well, today's the same day as it's been for the last 11 days and we haven't touched a fish, but, but you have to, you have to approach every day as today, today, something's going to happen. Right. Um, and absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then that's also, that could be, um, you know, just a way to look at this as in in a bigger scope, you know, as the big picture, like yeah, there were a lot of lean years in the eighties and nineties, and 
And then there was the 2000s when it boomed and, you know, anybody with a spay rod and, and a half a day could go down to the Deschutes and stand a pretty good chance of, of hooking and landing a fish. Um, so I guess my point is that we need to remain optimistic, do what we can to get out of these fish's way where we can, where it makes sense. If that means breaching some some uh, decrepit old dams that uh, that that are doing more harm than good, then then so be it. And uh, you know those the same guys that that uh, bitch and moan like you mentioned, they want fish too. They just That's don't right. necessarily know how to go about it. Nobody wants closures, Justin. You know what I mean? When they close a fishery, none of us get to fish, no matter how you, you go about doing it. So um, I think it's created um, some community, some some more advocates, um, regardless of what your technique is. Um, and hats off to these management agencies that have made some tough de- decisions about closures. And yeah, of course, the None of them are perfect right now, but I think I'm optimistic, as you said, about them handling it better and managing it better because there's more advocates out there um, across the board. So it's interesting to me that, uh, and and I know this is a a loaded question, um, but it's interesting to me that the ODF&W would make a decision to, to say, close the Columbia tributaries like they did, yet they will not... Um, they will not prohibit the catch and kill of wild fish down in your neck of the woods. Um, it's just kind of a conundrum to me. Is it based on license sales? What is it? It's obviously not, can't be based on science because the science is pretty much telling us there's not really enough fish right now to allow for catch and kill of, of wild fish, um, so, you know, just I guess in your view, what is the political reasoning behind the ODF&W's lack of, lack of movement on that issue, on the catch and kill issue on the South Coast? Because you can't kill fish, wild fish, pretty much anywhere else in the, in the Pacific Northwest, right? Yeah, there's a couple small ones um, and... and- uh, North Central Oregon, um, but yeah, for the most part, it, it's the it's one of the biggest paradoxes. And and um, as I as I look at um, you know management from British Columbia and closures up there on the Skeena and and Washington closures on the Skagit and and regulation adjustments and some closures on the Olympic Peninsula. Um, and then down here and, and you know, going down to the Columbia and the North Umpqua this summer, closing that down and the Deschutes and all the way down here, you get to the Southern Oregon coast and it's like, you know what, it's okay to just harvest these wild fish. And um, <clears throat> so it just, it's, it's mind bending. And I've been to every um, public comment, uh, public comment or public observation ODFW meeting where they discuss it that that's, possible and um i don't want to start like crazy conspiracy theories and things like that um because they have done a good job in other aspects i think this one though is simple enough that it is down to local coastal politics and um for the most part um residents in you know these counties in southern oregon do want to have the ability to harvest wild steelhead and not be told they can't 
And I think that they've been able to influence the commission to um, continue to be able to do it. Um, and uh, which to me is irritating because so the road goes through a whole bunch of counties. It goes through my county, you know, where I live and where I pay taxes and I fish the upper rogue. And me and most of my friends believe in catch and release of wild steelhead. Well, because they come in down here, like why, why do they have more influence than we do? Um, but I think that's what it is. And I think, um, you know, license sales, sure, that's, that's a, a part of it. But um, a healthy fishery, if it's healthy, people are still going to buy licenses, you know. Um, and an open fishery is going to sell hotel rooms and groceries and restaurant sale. But a closed fishery, <laughs> a lot less people will be coming here. So that would negatively impact them, obviously. So, um, yeah, it's crazy. I think it's just like old, literally like old school politics that have um, led again to this decision. And they have a new management plan that they're supposed to be collecting um, angler survey data on. And um, I've been on the water most of the last 30 days, I haven't seen one representative from the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, you know, doing any type of checks because that's supposedly a big part of their data assessment. How many fish are being caught? How many fish are being harvested? How many are coming back? All those things provide scientific data. And so when you, you, you allow a kill fishery essentially here without the data to back that it's sustainable. Um, I think that's just absolutely insane, but that is what continues to happen here. And, um, you know, I talked to a, a group of 10 to 15 guides that fish all kinds of ways around here and not one of us, none of us has seen any um, monitoring whatsoever of these fish. It's disappointing that, um, you know, the biologist locally here thinks that everything's fine and just doesn't um, agree that we should take a precautionary approach to, to management um, in relation to allowing wild harvest of these fish. That's interesting that you bring that up um, because when we were, I, I remember when we were down there filming um, those, those steelhead shows and um, we went to the Smith and they had just installed this state-of-the-art fish counting device on the Lower Smith. Um, and I was going to ask you about that because, to my knowledge, a lot of those kind of systems aren't in place on a lot of those other rivers that you work on, right? That are Those are largely freestone, undammed streams. So it's not like the Columbia where they can count the fish coming up the fish ladder. Um, yeah, so I was going to ask you that very question. Like, where does that ODF and W, where do they get their data on these numbers of fish um, to justify um, catch and kill. They, they don't have the data. They have no accurate data at all in real time. They'll refer to some studies that they did like in 2012. Um, they'll kind of talk about summer fish. They'll kind of, but they have no data whatsoever on any of these rivers. Um, in terms of knowing, and, and when you ask them at these meetings, how many fish are going up the Elk River? How many wild fish are going up the Chetco? How many, this year, or in 2021, and they can't honestly give you an answer because they don't, they don't know. So that's, it's just kind of scary that, you know, 
um, that, that you, you would allow wild harvest, you know, um, five per year, for instance, in, in the rogue. And, um, because let's do the other thing that there, there isn't, is any enforcement of five per year. So, um, and again, I'm not saying everybody does it, but there's plenty of people that are out there. Nice 14 pounder, Bob, like, well, should we mark our card? Ah, let's just see what else happens today. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. Uh, uh, or at the, you know, there's a part of the Jetco where I watched it multiple times where you could hike down, get your fish, walk up, throw it in your cooler, look around, hike back down, get you know, I mean, and then there's parts of uh, these upper smaller rivers that I like to hike up into. And I see evidence of fish murdering in these upper reaches. And you talk to, you know, some of the ODFW guys and they're just like, ah, oh, I think you're, that's blown out of proportion. It's like, well, I'm like, it's fact. Like I I've seen it, you know, and it's just, it's just disappointing that they, they don't account for anything like that. And, and uh, yeah, it's just, one of the craziest things in, in all my travels, you know, around the planet, you know, you go to Placencia in Belize and you walk up to a dock and the first thing you see is a giant billboard that has a tarpon, a permit and a bonefish. And it says, these fish are all protected under law. You will be prosecuted to the fullest, you know, and this like kind of third world, dude, the, the main street's dirt, you know what I mean? And they get it. And then you come to Gold Beach or Brookings and it's like, front page of the paper you're allowed to keep harvesting five per you know and it's like this is your resource like what are you doing like anyway yeah it's crazy man it's it's crazy um that's that's what you you know just shared there that they really don't have any data is that's uh that's spooky yeah well, it, it, it you it know is. it was more fun talking about lost wallets in in Mexico, but uh, <laughs> that's right. But, but uh, I appreciate uh, your perspective on, uh, on on a subject that I know hits very close to home for all of you folks that uh, that live and, and work and and kind of revolve around those special fish. Um, and uh, mm. yeah, like like. Like we said, you know, all we can do is we can we can hope that uh, the situation improves in the future and do whatever we can. Um, Write letters to the commission, you know, um, just to, you know, kind of look around at, at certain nonprofits that are helping, you know, with the, the future sustainability of Steelhead everywhere and just become an advocate, you know. And I think participation breeds advocate, advocacy, um, you know. And I agree with some closures, particularly if they're temperature related. Um, and there's other other closures that I don't understand too much. Um, so, you know, just be aware of where you're going and 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 be active with it and uh, help protect these fish because they're super important and a reflection of, you know, the uh, same thing with salmon. You know, the nitrogenous fish. If, if it's healthy, then then what's surrounding it's probably healthy too, particularly the commu the communities, and it probably shows that they have you know good people in it running the show if 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 they're looking towards having healthy fisheries. Should Great Lakes rainbows be called steelhead? No. 
<laughs> there it is. All right. Well, Dax, I've taken up enough of your time, man. Um, how do folks... No offense. No offense. I'm from Pennsylvania. I've got bunches of them, and they're great, and they fight hard, and there's lots of them, but it's a different animal, and God bless all you guys out there. Um, they're awesome, but no. Very good. Very good, Um how can, how can folks how can folks uh, keep track of your wanderings? Um, give me your website, your Instagram handle, all that good stuff. Yep, Instagram is just Dax Messet, D-A-X-M-E-S-S-E-T-T. Uh, the website is www.daxfly.com. And uh, yeah, if you just check that out, um, I try to keep the website up to date as good as I can. I'm, I'm not super computer savvy, but um, that and Instagram and uh, just shoot me an email, like look at what my trips are and if they interest you, um, shoot me an email or give me a call and we could talk about availability and stuff. Most of my stuff books a year in advance, but sometimes, you know, uh, people drop out or trip openings pop up both on my hosted trips. Um, as well as my, my guide venues. And um, yeah, always always looking to meet uh, new people that are interested and look at fishing the same way, warped way, I guess, that I do. So yeah. Awesome, man. Well, thanks again. And we'll, uh, we'll see you down the way. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns. And if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at the The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.